We are beginning a series. Actually, we began it last week. Um, Peter talked about the end of Genesis, the last few chapters of Genesis. I'm going to do a romp through, uh, <laughs> through Exodus from chapter 1 to chapter 18. So hold on to your seats. We're going to go fast, um, but not too fast. <laughs> so our idea here is to bring the Bible alive. That's what we want to do in this series, is to bring the Bible alive, that it makes a difference in my life today. Yes, even Exodus makes a difference in my life today. So if you have your Bibles, that's what we want to, we want to make sure you have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, no foul, it, just raise your hand and we have Bibles to give to you. You can put your Bible on your phone, that's fine too. But um, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Don't worry about looking unspiritual. There's a, there's a Bible need over there. So ushers will come and bring you Bibles. Keep your hands up. We're going to do, do a panoramic view of the Israelites' journey from Israel to the Promised Land. Well, I'm not going to get you to the Promised Land. I'm only going to get you to Mount Sinai. <clears throat> We're also in this series going to create a, a correlation between the Israelites' journey and our journey. What... Uh, what do we learn from them? And it's always good to learn from somebody else's mistakes, you think? <laughs> and they made lots of them. So we can learn lots. <laughs> and um, it's God's desire to take us out of bondage into freedom. And our, uh, we're also looking at our responses in between that. So there's bondage and freedom, but there's also this time in between. So what are we learning there? There's a whole lot we're learning. So this message is going to give you an overview, going to motivate us to read the book, Hopefully you read some of Genesis this last week. I'm going to tell you, during this whole time, I'm going to say, and if you want to know the rest of the story, you're going to have to read that chapter, or you're going to have to read this chapter, or you're going to have to read this chapter, because I cannot even read these chapters to you during this time. So you're going to have to fill in the blanks at um, your time, your devotional time at home. Okay, so... Before we start, we're going to do a wonderful, I love the Bible Project. If, you don't, if you've never watched or seen or participated in the Bible Project, you will right now. Because we're going to play that. Exodus Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is this story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed, the family grows, and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity, he brutally enslaves them, and he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. 
So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, who's this God Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist, so he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelites' sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly, as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil. He's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. Hi, this is Tim. And this is John. We think one of the best ways to understand the Bible is to look at... You can hear that part on your own, too, if you want to, at home. But, but here, we're going to stop it right there. Um, I just want to read a verse out of Genesis. I know that I'm supposed to be in, in, uh, in Exodus, but it says, 
to Moses, um, I mean to Abraham, he said, um, let's see, 15, 11, okay. And um, he says that he's going to uh, take them and he's going to put them in bondage for 400 years. And it, that is a foretelling of something that's going to happen and that it did. It says that he's going to judge the people who put him in bondage and he will. And so it's interesting how many times God tells us what he's going to do and then he does it. And it says in the word of God that God doesn't do anything before he tells the people of God what he's going to do through his prophets. So it's kind of an interesting thing that we see that clear through Genesis, clear through Exodus, that God tells them what's going to happen, and then it happens. It seems to me that they're always surprised when it does happen, which is kind of funny, but, but he always tells them what's going to happen before it happens. Exodus chapter 1 um, if you turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, you're just going to follow along um, randomly here because I'm going to skip around. But in Genesis chapter 1, um, um, we look at this part of the Bible today. We're going to look specifically at um, when we look at, the, um, at this whole section of Scripture. We're going to be specifically looking at the workings of God and the character of God. Those are the two things that we're going to be zeroing in on, is the workings of God and the character of God. I'm going to come back to that many, many times. And even though I'm going to come back to it many, many times, there's more times I could have come back to it. So in your reading this next week, find out how many times that you can find a character of God revealed in this, in this scripture. There's tons. Okay. Mainly because, let me explain why. Um, and what this portion of scripture really is. I was supposed to have a slide there. There, thank you. Okay. Um, <clears throat> mainly because we have the children of Israel have been in bondage for 400 plus years. And in that amount of time, they've forgotten a lot of things. They have some stories about Jacob. They have some stories about the 12 tribes. They have some stories. They're not even tribes yet. It's the, the 12 sons. They, they have some stories, and they know who they are, sort of, but they don't know who their God is. And um, they've been surrounded by, by Egyptian gods and by Egyptian ways for 400 years. Well, I would be affected during that amount of time, and they were. So what, what God has to do is say, okay, uh, let me tell you who I am. So at first, we're going to start with uh, Exodus uh, 1, 15, we're going to meet Shifra and Pua, who are first followers. Uh, you remember Peter told, uh, Pastor Peter told, uh, had a story about first followers, that, that guy who was dancing in the park and then everybody else ended up dancing, remember that? Okay, these two are first, these two are first followers the same kind of way, in that they are midwives called in by Pharaoh. Now that's a big deal. It's a big deal to be called into, if you were called into the uh, office of the President of the United States, it would be a big deal. But this is an even bigger deal because Pharaoh isn't just a leader of a nation, he is purported to be God himself. That's what he has told everybody, that's what everybody thinks that he is. They worship him as God, so he's been called, they, he calls these two midwives into his throne room. And he tells them, you are to murder the boys. 
As soon as a boy is born, then you kill it. If it's a girl, you can save the girls, but kill the boys. And <clears throat> so the midwives leave. And by the way, there's only two that are mentioned and two that were brought before Pharaoh. But you, we are remiss if we think there are only two midwives in all of Egypt, of all of Israel, because there's a million people. And there's a million people in Portland. And believe me, we have more than two midwives in Portland. And OBGYNs and all of those others. Okay, so there's way more people who are delivering babies than just two. But these two make a stand. And the stand that they made is copied by the rest of the midwives. And, they, and, and so they... Um, disobeyed because they feared God more than man, and they saved the children. And so um, because of that, I wanted to uh, underscore this because, I guess, because it involved women, and I like that. But, but because of this, we see a character of God that God blessed them. God gave them homes. Now, midwives in that day were either... Uh, unable to have children themselves, they were widows or whatever, but they hardly ever had any kind of home or any kind of household or any kind of house that they owned. And so this is a very big thing that God blessed them, and God's character is to bless. So let's go to chapter 2. Moses then, uh, he is, uh, he has, he's born. The midwives refused infanticide, and so then Pharaoh ordered the own, their own parents to kill them. That's quite something, to order your parents to kill. As soon as a baby is born, you better hope that it's a girl, because if it's a boy, you have to kill it. And the way that they want you to kill it is to throw it into the Nile, and there's crocodiles in the Nile, and these children will die. It's not a, not a nice thing. But Moses' mother refused. She hid her son for three months. Then after that, if you've ever had a three-month-old, you know that's impossible to hide a three-month-old baby. Maybe an infant, but a three-month-old is starting to be a little bit difficult to hide a three-month-old baby. So uh, she sort of obeyed, like the video said. Uh, she put him in the river, but in a basket. And what happens is the basket goes down, ends up into Pharaoh's daughter's home. So um, this is a... This is um, something that I really want to ponder this week, and that is God sets the stage in the past for our future. He set the stage for Moses by being in the courts of Pharaoh, and I will tell you, there's a ton of things that happened. He learned how to read and write. He wrote the first, first five books of the Bible. Nobody was reading and writing at that time. So he, he learned that. He learned the language. He learned, he learned how the courts happened, how the court of Pharaoh happened. There's all kinds of things that he learned in that time. So he set, God set the stage in the past for the future. And if you can think of your own past and all of the things that you have done in your past, and you think, oh, I will never use that in my life, and then you do, because God set the stage in your past for your future. And God does that. That is a miraculous thing that God does. So Moses ends up in Pharaoh's uh, courts in his, in his, in, in, uh, growing up in the life of an Egyptian, not in the life of a Hebrew, until he ends up in, that's, I'm going to leave that blank, you're going to read that yourself this week, how he ended up in the desert, but he did end up in the desert, and he was, he was walking, he was keeping sheep in the desert, which is a step down from being in Pharaoh's courts, and 
he, <laughs> he's keeping sheep in the desert, and he comes across this burning bush. Burned, but not consumed. So a burning bush in the desert is not a, not, that's not a strange thing. But to see a bush that is burning, but not consumed. So the bush isn't turning black. The bush isn't, it's just a burning bush. And then some strange things happen with Moses and the burning bush. And he's told to take off his shoes because it's holy ground. There's all kinds of things that happen there, which I also don't have time to talk about. But I, because I want, you to, I want you to realize that Moses himself decided, oh my goodness, there's a bush and it's burning and it's not consumed. I'm going to look and see what this is. So he turns aside, the Bible says, to look at that and he encounters God. So God does things. This is your pondering question for this week. Ready? God cause, does things to cause us to pause and to think and to ask. So when God does a strange thing, it's for us to, ca- to pause, to wonder, and to ask. And it's not like this. Why are you doing this, God? Okay, it's not like that kind of asking. It's kind of like, what did you have in mind here, Lord? I am not understanding this. How is this affecting me? It looks like it's really negative, and I don't know what to do. With that, kind of, that kind of question, God really doesn't answer very well, very much. And I'm, um, I ponder that, and I think, why doesn't he? And then I realize my own children growing up, when they whine to me, I would say, I don't understand you. I, I don't understand whining. Try a different language. Try English. Talk to me. Don't whine. Oh, is that what you mean? So when people were, are whining to God, you'll find throughout the Bible... They do it often. We do it sometimes. He doesn't really respond very well to that. I didn't as a parent either. And I think I learned it from him. (laughs) When he has our attention, he speaks. That's another thing that happens when we are rearing children is, look at me. Look at me. All right. This is what I want you to do. Now, what did I say? Okay, that's what... That's what we do as parents. That's what God does. He waits until he has our attention to speak to us. People say, God never speaks to us. He never speaks. I don't know what people are talking about when God said this and God said this to me. Well, have you listened? And I mean more than a microwave minute. Okay? More more than just a, oh, well, he didn't say anything, so I guess I'll do what I want to. Um. That is not having the attention of God. And it isn't standing and saying, okay, Lord, I really want to hear you. So pause and listen. Sometimes he speaks prophetically. He did to Moses. In fact, he told them, he said, he told Moses, he said, a prophetic sign to you that this really is me and that you really will do and fulfill all of these things is that you're going to end up on this very same mountain with all these people. So we'll see at the very end if that happens. Now, he told him to go to Pharaoh. And Moses knows what a big deal this is, and he does not want to go at all. All kinds of excuses. I can't talk. I have a stutter. I don't know what, I have nothing to offer. And so he keeps giving his excuses, and God keeps saying, no, no, you're going to go, because God's character is... When he calls us, 
He equips us and he empowers us. So some of the important statements from God at that in this burning bush moment in chapter four is, what is in your hand? He says to Moses, what is in your hand? And he had a stick in his hand. And so he performed all kinds of things, signs and wonders through that stick, which you will read again this week, right? Okay. <laughs> and, and he has a stick, and that's all he has. And the other thing he says, God says to him is, you've said you have a stutter. Okay, I'll be with your mouth. I'll be with your mouth. It's okay. I'll be with your mouth. So God sends him into Pharaoh with a stick and a stutter. And he thinks, how is this going to work, God? But the first people he has to go to is his own family. He has to go to the Israelites and, and tell them about the Pharaoh challenge. And they're going, ah. And, they, and then he shows them the signs and the wonders. And guess what? The people believed. Exodus 4, verse 31. I'm going to read it. Some of these I'm going to have you read out loud with me. But this one I'm reading to you. Um, verse 31. So the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction and they bowed their heads and they worshiped. It is the first time that we know of that the Israelites together worshiped God. So this is a big thing. It's a miracle. So now they're ready to go to Pharaoh and to begin all the signs and wonders. And the signs and wonders for Pharaoh um, and for the Israelites are different. For Pharaoh, it's plagues. And for Israel, it's wonders. So it's two very different things, although the first one is pretty bad. He's gonna, and after the first plague happens, which is the blood, um, the Israelites say, Whoa, wait a minute. You said you were going to deliver us, and now things are worse. Now, how many times have you in your life obeyed God and things got worse? Yeah. I think we can all identify with that. And things got worse, not at the end of the story, but at the very beginning you obey and things get worse. You think, wait a minute, God, I'm obeying you. You're supposed to be on my side. And that's exactly what the Israelites said. Wait a minute, what's going on? And they still had the first four plagues they were involved with. They all affected the Israelites as well until the fifth plague. It was only in, only in Egypt and not in Israel. And, that's, um, and I just want to point out one other thing because I'm not really going to talk about the plagues except to say that they are all Pharaoh versus God. Who's bigger, Pharaoh or God? Well, we know the answer to that because we, Pharaoh, we love God, you know. But that's not how they saw it. They saw Pharaoh as this and who's God? So he's defining it to him. And every one of the plagues has a, an Egyptian God that is defeated. Defeated in every one of those, one of those um, encounters. So I'm bigger than this God. I'm better than this God. I'm more powerful than this God. So all of those things, push those away, and I'm the God that you need to follow. So that's what he's doing. He's defining himself to his people. And they've always known that they are his people, but who is this God of theirs? 
Now, in the seventh plague, which is very interesting, in the seventh plague, we find that the Egyptians are starting to kind of observe what's happening and that these things aren't affecting the Israelites. So in the seventh plague, they look at this and they go, oh, they're bringing their cows in. Why are they bringing their cows in from the field? And it was because the hail came. And so they started bringing their cows in too, some of them. Not very many, but some of them did. And we're going to find out more about those some people in, in a bit. So um, anyway, so God is working to find himself to Israelites and to the world. In fact, when they go into the promised land four decades later, then they're going, wait a minute. I don't know. This is the, these are those people that destroyed Egypt with all those plagues and stuff there. You know, and so they started talking about who these Israelites were because of this, these things that were happening, these signs and wonders that were happening. So nobody forgot about this. The known world at the time, this was a known thing. They didn't have newspapers. Somehow they found out. Or internet. So Pharaoh's heart becomes harder and harder, and all of Egypt is falling into economic collapse. Their cows have died, their sheep are dead, the crops are dead, the land is destroyed. So their whole economic system is nothing. It's terrible. So he finally says, you can go, but leave your herds. And Moses said, no, we're taking our herds. They probably said that because they're the only animals left alive, right? So <laughs> he said, um, but Moses, uh, Pharaoh gets very angry and he says, if I see you again, if I see your face again, you will die. And that's supposed to be a real dun-dun-dun kind of, oh no, for Moses. And, but Moses has changed. He goes, oh, okay. And he, and he walks off like, this is really going to be okay, because he's had 10 wonders that he's seen. He's seen God do miraculous things, not just in his family and not just in Israel, but in the world. God is showcasing himself and saying, I am powerful. I am God, and I love this people. And those people who brought their cows in, they got to be joined to this people as well. So it's not just that, um, that he saved that. So, okay, so now he's more, become much more confident. So God says, not only will Pharaoh let you go after this last one, because that's another prophetic word, not only will Pharaoh let you go after this last sign and wonder that I'm going to do, but he will drive you out. So this is the last one. This is the last um, wonder. This is the last plague. This is the death of the firstborn. So it's not just the firstborn of your family, but the firstborn of all your animals, any that are left alive, the firstborn of those are going to die as well. And um, so this could, and this could affect Israel as well. This, this, um, this uh, sign and wonder, this plague, except for one thing. And the word was on, the, on uh, that... Um, on the video, and it was re it's redemption. 
except for redemption. And that's God's ultimate plan. And part of his plan is to reveal himself as redeemer. And in this last, um, in this last uh, sign and wonder is going to be the killing of the firstborn. And what's necessary is a lamb to, for that redemption. And to take a hold of the lamb's sacrifice doesn't just happen. It doesn't, they're not saved because they're Israelites. They're saved because of the blood of the lamb. They're not saved because they're in the right, they're in the right zip code address. They're not saved because they've done the right things. Nobody's done the right things to be saved, to be saved because all of us are worthy of death. All of us. And all of them. And he had to show them that that's what. So take a spotless lamb and sacrifice it and put the door, the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel. And you saw that in the video, thank God, because I don't have to explain everything that way. And it says that the death angel will pass over. That's where they get the word Passover. The death angel will pass over, see the blood, and, and that child, that firstborn, will be saved. So they do that now, they do that as a yearly feast commemorating this miracle. But then they had, to, they had to make that choice to do that. And if they didn't do it, they would be affected. They had to say, this blood sacrifice is for me. We have to say that very same thing. This blood sacrifice of Jesus Christ is for me. If we don't say this blood sacrifice is for me, you know, there's a, there's a phrase going around in our culture right now that everyone is a child of God. Well, we're all children of God. Well, potentially, yes. Jesus paid the price for every one of us to be adopted into his, into his family. Every one of us can belong to Jesus. Every one of us can participate in this. Every one of us. But not everyone will, but everyone can. So are you going to put the blood on your life or not? It's your choice. And if you do, you're adopted as a child of God. And then you could, that statement is true. You're a child of God. It's wonderful. It's freely given. It's totally given. Jesus died once. For the sins of the world, past, present, and future. So all of the world has that available to them, but not all of the world will do that. Egypt did not. And they suffered the consequences of that, and their firstborn died. So what we do, <clears throat> and what we're going to do right now, and you can probably guess that by having communion passed out, right? I mean, that's kind of an obvious thing. But I'm going to read 1 Corinthians. Perfect. Um, and what Jesus did in this, you have the Passover, it's instituted here with the blood on the, on the lintel and doorpost. And then when, fast forward um, 1,400 years <laughs> to Jesus, before he goes to the cross, he explains Passover. And this is what he does. This is what he says. Good. 
glad I have one of it. Okay. First Corinthians eleven twenty three to twenty six says, well twenty four, and when he had given thanks, when Jesus, uh, on the same night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, "Take eat. This my, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." So what they've been doing all these years is remembering the deliverance from Egypt. Now, Jesus is saying, remember me. Remember, this is my sacrifice. And it comes right together with Passover. Now, remember what I said before? God sets things up in the past for our future. This is a big setup. I mean, it's 1,400 years, but, you know. So he sets up Passover so that we understand Jesus dying on the cross. Every one of these Disciples sitting around the table had taken Passover every year of their life. It was not a strange thing for them to do. So it was like Thanksgiving, you know, they do it every year. But this time, Jesus takes this piece of bread that was in the middle of three pieces of bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. And when you eat this, remember me. Remember, this is going to be the sacrifice for you. So if you have not received Christ as Savior, today you can do that before you even eat this and say, Lord, this is for me. I want what you have for me. I want this thing called redemption. I want this thing called salvation. I need this in my life. I don't understand why I need it exactly because you know what? When you come to Jesus, you don't exactly know everything that you're getting into. But he leads us into paths of righteousness, and it's so wonderful. So let's remember, Jesus, we thank you that you died for us. This is your body that was broken for us. We remember you right now. We remember that you made the sacrifice for us. We remember that because of you and your sacrifice, we can go right into the throne room of God and talk to him face to face. What an amazing thing. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's eat it together. And in the same manner, and that means in the same manner, in the same teaching way, because he was teaching them what this meant, he took the cup and he said, this is cup is the cup of the new, new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is called the cup of redemption. I mean, it's been called the cup of redemption for years and years, for 1,400 years. They didn't exactly know why, but it's because it's the blood of Jesus. And this is what cleanses us from all sin, as we remember what Jesus did for us and his blood. Father, we thank you for sending your son. We thank you, Jesus, for dying and bleeding for us. We thank you for covering our sin and releasing us from the bondage of it. Father, I pray for those people here who have never been released from bondage, and I pray, God, as they take this and say, okay, Lord, I want this, that you would release them from their bondage of sin as well. We thank you for our release from our bondage of sin that you continually do in our lives, and we love you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Take this together.
So yay, the final god of Egypt is destroyed and Pharaoh himself is destroyed. The chains are broken and God is redeemer. And now they are free. They are free and they are, t- and they are told, you go and you go now. We don't want you here. You're scary. Everything has happened. It's wrong. It's bad. You're scary and you have destroyed everything around us. We want you out of here. God is Redeemer. So, <laughs> yay! So, they, so they, what do they do? They follow a cloud. All right? That's the sign that God gave them to follow a cloud. I think the cloud was bigger than that. That's my own interpretation, but I couldn't find a bigger picture. But they followed a cloud, and if you think about it, they followed a cloud by day and fire by night. This is the desert, and this made shade for the day, and it made warmth at night. Desert gets pretty cold at night. So God was providing again. He provides again and again and again and again. So um, he's amazing. So they, led by, they were led by this cloud because they went a different way than they thought was, made sense to them. Have you ever gone, followed God a way that didn't make sense to you? Uh-huh. Yeah. There's a lot of stories in the Bible about that. There's a lot of stories in my life about that. I'm sure in your life about that as well. You follow God, and it doesn't make sense to you, but in the end you go, oh, I get that. Oh, I see why. But, so they were going this way, and it still didn't make sense to them because they were led right up to the Red Sea, and Pharaoh decides, oh my goodness, I've let my whole slave company go, and this is, this is the workings of, my whole, um, of our whole system. If I'm going to recover an economy, I better get the slaves back. So he runs after them. And it's an interesting thing if you read, and you'll see this probably, that the sh- the, the, all of the, the soldiers that went that had um, chariots, their hearts were hardened too as well. There was this hardness that came. And they were going to go after these, these horrible Israelites, and they were going to probably massacre quite a few of them, that was their plan, and take their slaves back. Okay. But... And the Israelites had a head start, that's true. But the Israelites had men, women, children, cows, sheep, old people, babies. They had, it was a camping trip. I mean, you, you know, you don't move very far. You're all gone camping, right? You don't move very fast with camping. And so they're all moving fairly slowly, but they make it to the Red Sea And then they look in the distance, and here's Pharaoh's army coming in. They go, oh, no, what in the world were you thinking? Moses, we're going to die in the desert. Why are you going to take us to the desert to die? There are no graves here. We could have died in in, um, Egypt. And they could have, I suppose. I want you to turn with me to Exodus. You already have that book because I got you there in the first of this of the um, of this talk here, and go to Exodus verse uh, chapter fourteen and verse thirteen. I'm going to wait till you get there. Exodus fourteen, verse thirteen. I want to read that together, which is why you have your Bibles. 
We're all going to be reading it in different translations, but that's okay. We're going to all start together and end kind of together, and that's really okay, all right? So let's read this together. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will again see no more forever. Let's read 14 too, because that's pretty cool. The Lord will fight for you, and you will hold your peace. (laughs) So you just be quiet, and God's going to fight for you. Okay, so what is God going to do? So when they they moved to, uh, and they followed this cloud, they were a mixed multitude. When they came here, Moses puts his stick that is not... The stick is not powerful. The stick is what God is using, but the stick is not. There's some magic about the stick. Because he uses the stick all day, and there's no magic, right? But, but he says, God says, hold your stick out over the water. And what happens? It, it separates. But what happens? It takes a long time for that water to separate. What's happening as these Egyptians are coming? Well, there's a thick darkness that comes, the Bible says, a thick darkness that comes. That word darkness is the same as in Genesis 1 when it talks about darkness over the face of the earth. It's the same darkness. It's a thick darkness, darkness that, that will hide a million people, which is good. How can you hide a million people in the desert? Thick darkness. That's the answer. So this thick darkness comes up, hides the people, and during the time that it's, they are hidden, this happens. The Red Sea is opened, and there's dry land. Now, I grew up with a creek in my backyard. There's a reason for I'm telling you this, because when the creek dries up, it doesn't ever dry up completely, but when it dries up in the summer, and then it was this big, usually, and then in the summer, it'd be like this big, and this part was dry, sort of. There wasn't any water on that part of the creek for a long time. Still, if you stuck your foot in and went, like about this far in, with mud, creek mud takes a long time to dry. I'm sure that Red Sea mud takes a long time to dry too, except if there's a miraculous working God. And there was. They crossed on dry land. So they crossed over on dry land, and which was amazing, and the darkness must have lifted at some point, and the, then Egypt went, what, where did they go? Oh, my goodness, let's go after them. So they go, and the sea parted. I'm sure that they probably went, okay, this is weird, but they made it through, so we should too. So they started, and the wheels fell off of their chariots, and they were, I like King James Version says they were discomfited, which means that they were all in turmoil, and they were upset, and the sea moved over them, and they were drowned in the sea. You will see them no more. What did Israel have to do? Nothing. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord. Cross the Red Sea. They had to do some things, but they didn't have to actively do anything against 
their enemy. That was God's job. So, let's look at some of the character of God. God has proven himself to be protector. There you go. Uh, <clears throat> protector, guide, redeemer. That he is aware. He is a God who is aware. God, do you know what's happening? The Israelites, the, the Egyptians are coming. Yeah, he knew. He's aware. And he has plans. So this is not catching him off guard. So the, um, the next thing when they get across on the other side, they, um, they now have a group of people, cattle, the same group of people over on the other side, no Egyptians following them anymore. But now what? Now we have a problem of food and water. So they're crying out and saying, wait a minute. <clears throat> I love when they start complaining and, and they say, we long for the big pots of meat in, in, when we were slaves. Really? They served you big pots of meat when you were slaves? Really? Probably not. Anyway, they have an alternate, alternate kind of memory about what happened. <clears throat> anyway, so God gives them manna, and they, this manna falls from heaven, and um, they, they get it, and the name manna means what is it? They've never seen it before, so they pick it up and go, manna, like, what is it? And so they try it, tastes good, and so they, they live on manna, which is, I don't know, it's been called heavenly bread, that it supplied all of their nutritional needs. We have no idea what it is. It was a miraculous thing that began right here. And then there was water. They came to water, and the water was... <clears throat> was not palpable. palpable. So, they, um, so then Moses goes, okay, this water doesn't taste good, and people don't want to drink it, and it's awful. And so what did they do? They threw a branch in the water, and it became pure. Okay. Well, I would say that that's another miracle, because that doesn't happen. I've Throw lots of wood into water, and it hasn't changed the makeup of the water at all. Anyway, the important thing is, is that God did that. <clears throat> he healed the waters. And Exodus 15, 26 says, well, let's read that one together, too. 15, 26, you're almost there. Let's turn a page. He says, um, if you diligently heed together. Ready? And he said, if you diligently heed the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you which I have brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So God healed the waters and then he also brings it together and says, healing of waters and healing of people. And he brings that together and he says, I am the God who heals you. That, if you know your Bible, it is called 
Yahweh Rapha in Hebrew, which means I'm the God that heals. The interesting thing that God healed first was water, not people. So I think that's a really good testimony and a really good stance that I can take in praying for my washing machine when it dies, right? <laughs> and we were praying for washing machines, cars, you know, all those things. Oh, God, would you please fix? Yeah? Mm-hmm. I've had that miraculously happen. I know of lots of friends of mine who've had appliances healed. <laughs> take it from this scripture right here. Anyway, we're not done. We're not done yet. We're almost there. Okay. Uh, Genesis 17, 15, uh, Amalek shows up, which is important. And when you read to this week, I want you to notice where Amalek is at the beginning, because God talks about it at the burning bush. And then he says, I'm going to deal with Amalek. And he does right as soon as they, as they cross the Red Sea, which is crazy. But this is, the, this is a story about Moses raising his hands and And uh, the battle is won. He puts his hands down. They lose the battle. Aaron and her hold their hands up. If this is a story that you're familiar with, that's good. If it's not, you'll have to read it this week. Anyway, (laughs) um, so they win that. And at the end of that, uh, God declares, I mean, Moses declares God as Yahweh Nisi, the Lord, my banner, which is an interesting thing because he could have said, Look how powerful I am. When I raise my hands, you guys win. And they would have followed him because they're used to following a man, Pharaoh. But he didn't do that. He called upon God. And right now, where I'm leaving you right now, it's a full circle to Mount Sinai. And next week is crazy. So don't miss it because we're going to go to Mount Sinai. And that's a, that's a fun trip right there. Let's see what God will do. But this week, make certain that you know all the things that lead up to that. So read that together. Let's read that together.